Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Economics for Rebels, the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Not too long ago, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered. This rebellion continues. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations. Conversations with and for those who are ready to act on rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Alexandra Kovesh, and you are listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Ecological economists all over the world attempt to find the right path to transcend our currently unsustainable and unjust economic practices. Some are more radical in their proposed measures than others. Today's guest, Anitra Nelson, argues that monetary values and activities are the key stumbling block to us achieving socio-political and economic justice and sustainability on earth. Hence, she proposes to do away with money altogether. Anitra Nelson is an ecological economist, an activist scholar affiliated with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Her widespread transdisciplinary research covers eco-socialist, post-growth and degrowth perspectives. She's also a creative writer who has published poetry and prose, written and directed a play and short film scripts. And all this on top of the numerous scientific publications and books. Her most recent book published in February 2022 is entitled Beyond Money, a Post-Capitalist Strategy. Welcome, Anitra. It's a pleasure to be here. In this podcast series, um, many ecological economists have already argued that market mechanisms are um, absolutely incapable of, of solving the ecological and social crisis that we are facing today. In your book, you agree with this, but you move one step further saying that we need not just to transcend the market logic, but also to build a world beyond money. Why do you think that? Well, I don't think that we can transcend market logic without going beyond money. Money is the hub of the market society. We can't define capitalism without recourse to money. Money is central to capitalism. In the 1960s and 1970s, my involvement in social and environmental movements, as well as the Latin American studies I did, showed me that we often analyze strictly in terms of social and ecological values. And then we tend to do a backflip. At the end of a manifesto book article or an opinion piece, there's a, a call to account for social and ecological values by changing economic policies or whatever. When it was called to call for socialism, it was still a planned socialism that simply used a modified market money remaining a state planning tool that even prohibited direct democracy. In the last 50 years, I've seen little change to that kind of double think, but I have discovered currents of thinking and more recently this century, actual movements whose practices are explicitly non-monetary so that social and ecological values can be their prime concern. My book draws 
on decades of engaging with the role of money and how we might be able to do without it. Latin American history, Australian history, it all boils down to economics. The whole imperialist and neo-colonial thrust is based on economic drives and monetary ideology. After studying Mexico's foreign public debt, I embarked on a PhD thesis in revolutionary studies that looked at Marx's concept of money. And that allowed me to review all kinds of theories of money and monetary practices in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary ways. 20 years ago, I had an article published in the Ecological Economics Journal. It was called The Poverty of Money, harking on Marx's The Poverty of Philosophy and pointing out the central and critical issues surrounding exchange value in Marx. I was excited to find that in the early years of both the Cuban and Russian revolutions, there were debates precisely on the role of money in a transition to socialism. In the ecological economics article, I argued that issues raised in these debates could inform ecological economics as a transdisciplinary field of studies seeking ecological sustainability. And then 10 years ago, I and the late Franz Tinnemann co-edited Life Without Money, Building Fair and Sustainable Economies. It's a non-market socialist collection with numerous contributors. It brought together, for instance, the anti-money, zero-work arguments of autonomous Marxist Harry Cleaver and the work of philosopher John O'Neill, who shines a light on the work of Otto Neurath, a central figure in the Vienna Circle and the socialist calculation debates, who argued that is, there is no way of achieving socialism without an in natura economy, an economy in kind that operates directly in kind or in terms of what I call real values. Then about five years ago, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism asked me to write an article that has the title, Your Money or Your Life. In that article, I briefly sketch out what becomes a whole chapter in Beyond Money. It's a chapter on a world without money. What these works iterate is, is that in order for us to address the two great challenges facing humankind, that's sustainability and equity, we need to plan production using real values. The recurring theme here is that prices are not socially or ecologically rational. Monetary values and relations, production for trade and distribution via markets appropriates our communal decision-making capacity. All the time, monetary processes interrupt and strangle our efforts to change in positive directions. Monetary decision-making is outside the control of governments and even the most powerful economic forces. No one is in control. Market-based monetary calculations and operations are not fit for purpose to fulfill all people's basic needs in simple and efficient ways, giving us enough, no more, no less, nor do markets facilitate sound and efficient users, uses in terms of earth and ecological processes. If we take calls for degrowth, for example, we immediately find a monetary barrier. 
Capitalism has no operating systems to degrow. We know, need to go beyond any kind of production for trade to actually manage production for social and ecological requirements. So sections of the degrowth movement, for instance, call for an unconditional autonomy allowance, which can be delivered in kind. Well, you mentioned uh, real value, and um, I have a question about real value, because what you argue is that instead of the term use value, that we link to satisfying needs and wants, and of course, define it in monetary terms, we should talk about real value that embraces the, the significance of, of something in a more holistic dimension. So whatever we talk about is, you know, we, we have to define it like in the system's view, uh, what it means for the whole system. So um, can you tell us what the real value of things might entail? Sure. So we're all familiar with the dual nature of marketed goods of commodities. They have all at the same time an exchange value and a use value. Exchange values appears in our everyday lives as prices, as monetary values. At the same time, transactions involve the simultaneous exchange of use values. Use values being the uses or purposes or services provided by something or someone. Now, real values are a developed form of use value. In other words, Use value is an aspect of real values, where use value is not just a purpose um, or use for humans, but that is where real value is not just a purpose or use for humans, but for any living being. Real values are the actual or potential diverse values of living beings, whether they be plant, animal, rock and landscapes, or in the atmosphere. Values that are relevant to actual and holistic human and ecological needs. They're the qualities of things where the criteria of equality relates to living things, including humans. So you're right, it's important to have this more holistic, real non-monetary term because in non-monetary economies, we develop a knowledge of production and use that depends on such real values. Real values are not just use values to humans, but they're connected with Earth. So it might be easiest here if I just read a short extract from Beyond Money. And it comes from that chapter describing how we live in a world beyond money, which I call Yenamon. So to quote, instead of the old unreal abstract exchange value and money, in Yenamon, we perceive and approach the world using real values. Real values go beyond simple utilitarian meanings of a use value to incorporate all those environmental and social qualities and quantities that comprise the needs of both people and planet. Real values are drawn from biological, ecological, social, and popular knowledge of our needs and the needs of our natural environments and embrace all aspects of how to satisfy, sustain, and care for both. By way of a simple but partial example, from a seedling to its senescence, 
A tree has ecological needs, including for water, soil and sunlight. A tree also satisfies needs of earth and people, including through transpiration, a significant stage in the holistic water cycle, by sequestering and storing carbon as part of the carbon cycle, and by producing fruit that's harvested by animals, including humans, who also used pruned branches to make furniture and bark for medicines. Production and exchange is based on such real values. Caring and decision-making is based on real values. We live for, of, and by real values. This is a global as well as a local reality. We live locally in unique and rich eco-habitats, adapting to them as they adapt to us, unquote. So I found it productive to develop a positive reference to what might be called anti-capitalism, post-capitalism or non-market socialism or whatever. And that is how real valueism evolved as constructive term. Real valueism embraces arguments and theories that pertain to non-monetary economies that are based on real values. As a noun, real valueist means a supporter and or an advocate of non-monetary economies based on real values. As an adjective, it means associated with non-monetary economies based on real values. So real value studies itself are investigations focusing on actual and potential real values in the context of likely and optimum social and ecological outcomes, totally distinct from exchange value. Would we have to agree on the real value of things? And if we did, how, how would we do that? No, I think that real values is a meaning that people give to something and real value itself would change for you and for me, and it would change for us through time. So that the real value of, of something would be in the context of other things. And so, and this is what is missing when we get to market-based values. Number one, the decision-making is not, is out of our control. It's made largely by people who, who are producers, who are managing. But they themselves actually don't make decisions based on, on people's real needs or, or ecological real needs. Probably farmers might come closest to doing that kind of thing, but even they are so caught up in the market that they need to be thinking constantly, am I going to be making enough money so I don't get bankrupt, so I have an income, so that my children are fed. So real values is a tricky term. It's not, it, 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 it's not an easy term in that sense. You've already started listing a few things that are, are wrong uh, in the way we see or define or use money in the world. But if you just had to... Um, summarize shortly what you think are the main arguments against the way we see money now, uh, what, what would these be? 
I think the key thing is this, in producing for trade, we've handed over to the market and its central organising hub of the wheel, money, our capacity to decide what we produce, how we produce it, and who produces it for whom. For reasons of social equity and ecological sustainability, we need to produce instead on demand. We need to start with a list of our needs and an understanding of what Earth is capable of offering us and work with it. We need local economies that are largely collectively sufficient so decision-making is easily grasped, monitored and changed. Um, it is said in economics that money has three main functions, store of value, unit of account and medium of exchange. Do you think we would really have to abandon all three uh, of these functions in a, in a world beyond money or just revert to one or two of them? I guess uh, many ecological economists would argue that we might just have to redefine these functions or, or maybe get rid of one, but not all of them. Yes, that's, that's the predominant view, you're right. But I argue that we will need to get rid of all three. We need to go beyond money. So um, interestingly, these are only abstractly separate functions. In practice, all operate in an intertwined and inseparable way within capitalist market economies. That's why Marx called them a universal equivalent. Most significantly, you can't and should not reduce real values to an abstract indicator, as in a price, pricing a forest, for instance. You know, because goods and services and the purposes to which we put them are incomparable. And that money pretends to make them comparable. It reduces and smothers all the real values into prices. Even a total monetary evaluation, for instance, in gross domestic product. GDP. Money as a medium of exchange is like social credit. In my book, I argue for a credit theory of money. In, that means in practice, in real life, I do this work here, I get a certificate of good work, well done, and, and then I spend that on my means of livelihood. Money's like a voucher as social credit. I explain in Marxist and beyond Marx ways how money can't be a store of value unless you have a successfully operating market system. So as a store of value in stocks and shares or property, monetary assets simply reflect like a mirror market conditions. It's a, a value that's kind of outside of itself. That's exchange value, no? So, I maintain that the key function of money is in fact as a unit of account. And here, it doesn't act like any other measure, like kilometres or kilograms, because the, the standard itself is as elastic as a rubber band and it can break as far as having no value at all. Money and private property 
which go hand in hand, have served as a structure to establish and maintain rich and powerful elites. But they don't rule rationally in terms of our basic human needs, nor the regenerative needs and limits of Earth. And that's why I argue that we need to go beyond money. Okay, we have to go beyond money, but what would the world look like? How, how would we, how would we do things? <laughs> okay, so in my chapter on precisely this topic, um, I outline how Yenemon is based on real values with substantive direct democracy. So imagine a global network of collectively sufficient cell-like communities. Each is responsible for the sustainability of the local environment of which it lives. Communities are of variable sizes, sub-subregions offering direct and efficient forms of production producing locally as close as is feasible to end its end users. I say, imagine each diverse small community caring for earth is empowered, it's relatively autonomous, organized horizontally, internally, and seamlessly networked locally and globally. We have personal property, but no private property. The entire earth is commons with clear and universal principles for commoning, sharing land through secure and fair use rights, which change over time. Everyone contributes a set amount of hours per week to collective production, and in return, their basic needs are met. How? Well, each household guesstimates their basic needs annually. Working groups report on the capacity of the local area and the capability of locals to fulfill these various needs. Together, everyone plans on who gets what and how it will be produced. Then they work and monitor and tweak how they will fulfill those orders all year round. In Yenemon, we produce corn, apples, solar electricity, potable water and clothes for particular already identified people. This is production on demand. So we don't need markets or money. We know who's ordered what. So everything that's produced is distributed according to those needs. Once established, planning mainly relies on updating previous calculations and taking account of seasonal, natural and human factors that have changed. We discuss and negotiate compacts to produce for and receive from neighbouring or more distant communities certain goods and services to satisfy needs that can't be fulfilled locally. So compacts are a non-monetary version of a contract. We don't overconsume or go without or waste. We pass on or leave things we don't need in spaces for others to use them. We've got collective stores for emergencies and to fulfill 
unforeseen gaps. So here, grassroots decision-making replaces production for trade, market, exchange, and money. Decision-making focuses on these real biophysical, environmental, and social measures and values. The reward for contributing to collective daily tasks is the lifelong security of communally meeting our basic needs. We engage together respectfully to make decisions on local production and the terms of exchange, the compacts with neighboring producers. Real social and ecological values offer the democratic and materialist terms for replacing money as the organizing principle of society. I grew up in, in socialism and uh, I quite clearly remember these debates on needs and planning for needs and who decides for needs. And, um, and I must say that, you know, the times when, when these were gone, people did feel for, for a certain period of time liberated. Of course, now they understand that it, it had a price and it had a high price. But nonetheless, I, I would like to ask you how in Yenemon these, these conflicts of, of needs and planning, how can they be mitigated without, um, without this feeling of, of losing your autonomy, of losing yourself in the process? Well, I think that the, the concept of basic needs will be a con continually discussed kind of question because if we, if we can see that we have the capacity to have something without it impacting on Earth's regenerative capacities or without it disadvantaging local people and they actually want it, well, why not do it? So, and, and these sorts of things change, that changes to do with internal things, to do with people. People develop in different kinds of ways. We develop different kinds of arts and crafts and, and there are different possibilities. There are different technologies. So I don't see basic needs as being something that we, for instance, could all vote on and say, here it is, it's written down. And it's not like that at all. It's like love or, or something that's extremely abstract, but still we need it and it's there and, and we can discuss it, we can argue over it. Yeah. So I completely understand what you mean by basic needs. And I think the problem, the biggest problem with basic needs comes when you have a hierarchy. It has when you have people who, are, who, are, who see it as their province to deliver basic needs to other people. Whereas if we're all doing it together, all seeing what our basic needs are and meeting them, well, then we actually understand that we need to negotiate and, and engage and alter our expectations as we're going along as well. 
And I think too, that's the advantage of having relatively local economies that aren't completely autonomous or isolated, but are actually porous and, 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 and have these kind of discussions with local neighboring communities and, and even those that are more distant whether it's via a kind of internet or other kind of forms of communications a lot, you know, that are long distance. You're emphasizing um, deliberation, dialogue, communication as, as, as one key aspect of, um, of, 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 of such a life, because otherwise you, we can't know what real value is. We can't know what needs are. Uh, we can't know what the carrying capacity of the earth is. So, um, so this is like this seems to me one important principle of of of, of such a world. Um, what other principles would you um, suggest to guide such communities? Well, I think that we have to have a principle that humans and Earth—that's all life—has a right to live, and we dedicate our lives to regenerating life in all its forms. And again, that's, that's, that's something in a sense we can't achieve. We know that from the beginning, but, but, but it's kind of like we try to attain that. So we care and we share, these are principles, and we produce on demand with a key, keen eye to both Earth's limits and our own limits. We produce enough, neither not enough or too much, so we're engaged in commoning and commoning itself is, becomes a principle. In other words, like our principles include a right to live for all people and other things, commoning, sharing, caring, producing on demand in creative ways and observing limits. So this is a world that's built on principles of quality, caring, integrity, there are a few initiatives that already follow um, partly such principles. And um, um, my concern when, when we point to these communities is that it's very, very difficult to imagine how you can scale these initiatives up, not in terms of their size, but in terms of their uh, um, uh, their existence in this, what you call the globalized network. Um, do you think they can be scaled up or, or um, how, how, can, how can this happen that, that this network comes into being that, that is already beyond money? Yes, so look, in my book, I do speak about numbers of ways that communities of people and human activities already prefigure a post-capitalist world beyond money. You know, for instance, I speak about exchange-free, barter-free communities in Germany, about large intentional communities or communes that share and care and have one purse, um, about ways in which Zapatista communities and Kurdish revolutionary communities marginalize money and they establish that direct democracy over their material means of production, forcing out or closing off market relations and production for, chain, uh, for trade. Um, I sort of ask, what is scaling up? I mean, 
Is it thinking of the world in terms of commodities and machinery and territory and making things bigger and bigger as in more impressive? I mean, I think I don't really imagine scaling up so much as scaling out. And what I mean by that is by creating more and more influences that dynamically multiply because people, humans are creative and yes, we can follow models, but here I think we need to be talking about cells and organic reproduction and organic integration and organic change, not cancerous cells that multiply and conquer life like capitalist activities do, say in the form of neoliberal cities or whatever scaling up, but thinking rather of cells as a in autonomous communities of people who see that we're at a crossroads and we need to take control and use our power to save humanity from ecocide. And we do actually see a lot of grassroots communities now developing in very local ways against the things that they see locally, which they don't like and they want to change. I uh, recently listened to a podcast with uh, Yuval Harari, uh, the, the star historian, and, and he said that money is the most amazing precursor of mutual trust and how us humans can adopt narratives in our social lives. And uh, while I was reading your book, um, this quote kind of came back to me and, and it made me wonder if, if what you are saying is that we need to shift this kind of trust um, to someplace else. What do you think? I think that only someone who's rich or using money to grow themselves to the detriment of earth and other people can really trust money. Yes, capitalists trust money, but do workers? I mean, think the whole tradition of unfair prices of bread, too low wages, and today rising prices for housing, houses everywhere. You might trust money to be the greatest power, but only really if you've got access to it. And while everyone agrees to the principles of the market. So, I mean, I'd really like to counter his quote with others. In the film, Annie, Anne says, and I quote, you love money and power and capitalism. You know they're never going to love you back. And that's like the ad buster refrain. And I quote again, brands aren't your friends. They're only nice to you so you keep buying things that you don't really need, unquote. And, of course, there's the famous Spike Milligan quote, money can't buy friends, but... It can buy you a better class of enemy. But the quote I like best shows that trust, even mutual trust, might be wholly misguided. And it's from Nomadland, a relatively recent film. And in essence, there Bob frames money as tyranny, not trust. Bob says, and I quote, the odd thing is that we not only accept the tyranny of the dollar, of the marketplace, we embrace it. 
We gladly throw the yoke of the tyranny of the dollar on and live by it for our whole lives. I think of the analogy as a workhorse. The workhorse that is willing to work itself to death and then be put out to pasture. And that's what happens to so many of us, unquote. So for me, money is not something I trust. The argument in my book is, is that we need to respect and trust what and where we are. We need to respect and trust ourselves and Earth. I might not have done justice to Harari in, in interpreting his, his words, because basically what he was saying is that money started off by one person saying, you know, I do something for you and I trust that, you know, in some time later on, I will get something back, maybe not from you, but from somebody else. And, and I kind of trust you through that. And, and it, it's not the piece of paper or now it's not the zeros and ones in the computers, but it's, it's this kind of trust that I trust another person um, that one day when I, when I get something, one day I will, I will get something back. So this is the kind of trust he was, uh, uh, he was talking about that was obviously totally distorted uh, um, in the last, um, well, definitely in the last, couple of hundred years but probably it all started a little bit uh, before that but um, it's how it's yeah. how many of us as children are introduced to money yes that's right <laughs> it's it's it, it, it's how our parents explain it to us and it's what we kind of see from having in front of our eyes and we develop as i see it there's, 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 a, there's a trust and a distrust in money, which is always arguing. You know, it's, it's Marx talks about it. It's the, be, it's the bond beyond all bonds. Money becomes a nexus in this society. You know, it becomes the kind of the social thread that sews us all together. So. In one sense, I can completely understand what's, what's being said there. But it's a way of distancing ourselves from it and just understanding exactly what's happening there at the same time. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. And uh, last, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. What is your rebellion? I might rebel against money. <laughs> surprise surprise <laughs> how do you do that in your own life how I do it in my own life is, is that I pretty well um, always tried to work part-time and that's meant that um, I you know was automatically in many ways trying to live a fairly simple life. And, and what introduced me to this and, and why I did this was that I was very interested in creative art and writing as a teenager. And so right from the beginning, I, I knew that if I wanted to have time to do these things, um, I would need to 
created um, by not having paid work. And the first job that I had was in a bookshop. And I was interested in writing books. And here I was at that consumer end of it, the retail end of it. And it blew my mind. Um, so, I mean, these are all of the kinds of thoughts and experiences that really have fed into my ideas about money and the problems with it. So right from the beginning, I've been involved with actually trying to do things as freely as possible. I have actually lived um, in a commune um, where people had one purse. Um, I've, um, at the moment, I have a, a Castlemaine Free University, which is a very part-time kind of thing, but I've been involved with establishing um, and convening um, the Blue Mountains Fruit and Nut Tree Network, which was all just based on non-monetary principles. And so all of this is very hard because we, we, we're all attached to the monetary world. So we can't just unlink um, completely unless we go into a monastery or whatever, and that doesn't create social change. Um, so, and what I think I found really interesting was over the last couple of decades, finding the numbers of people in groups and associations and movements who are actually doing this more. Thank you very much for our conversation, Anitra. Um, Thank you. And thanks all, to all of you for spending time with us. Stay tuned with us for our next episode. Bye, Anitra. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.